So I have uh, good news to share. Over Shabbos, uh, my wife Chaya and I became the lucky parents of a baby girl. So I actually pre-programmed my phone. I put in in the Uber app. I put in the like the address. You could set the address as like a favorite. So so I already had the address, and I had the number of the uh, the midwife or the doctor um, on file. I took all my children to my brother who lives a few blocks away. I uh, deposited them there. They were all still sleeping. I just put them down there, and they knew what to do with them. I hope. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, we were actually scheduled to eat out. We got invited out for lunch. I stopped off by our neighbor who invited us out and told him, okay, we're not going to be coming. He actually gave me some food. So we had some food to take with us. We had prepared some bags to take along the way, like bug out bags, mm-hmm. like survivalists, you know, ready to go at a moment's notice. And the rabbi told us that it's ideal when you're having a baby in Shabbos, of course, the Talmud already says that you know all the all the laws of Shabbos are overridden in a case of a of a potential uh, life uh, saving um, situation, of course, and therefore, like no, there's no problem to get in the car, turn in your car, drive to the hospital, no problem. But anything that you could avoid, you have to avoid. I Means the only things that must be overridden can be overridden. The things that can that you, know, you shouldn't just go check. Check the sports on your on your phone, right? You shouldn't just check your emails, right? Things that you need to do, you need to do. Things that you don't need to do, well, then you can't do. So the rabbi said, okay, if you drive, then you have to give your car to the to the valet, because if you turn off the car, well, then you're there's a fire and you're and you're extinguishing the fire. That's a problem. So you give it to the valet, and then that 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 that's what you need. You would need to do give the valet. So that would be if we were to drive. But ideally, the best thing now is is Uber because with Uber, someone else is driving. And therefore, the only things that you're going to be doing are, you know, summoning it, which is it's is it a question. It's probably not of biblical severity to summon the Uber. So, uh, so we got the Uber and uh, I had the Uber driver open the door. Now, there actually is one issue that I had to avoid. And that is carrying because they open the door, okay, but then I have these bags. And in our neighbor, there's an Eruv, meaning there's a, there's a halachic device that in effect turns the entire neighborhood into one domain and therefore carrying within the domain is not a problem. But we're driving to the medical center in Houston and you need to carry your items from the outside, from the curb into the building, you're transferring from one domain to another domain, that's a problem. Uh, it might be even one as, as, as severe as one of the 39 principles, uh, 39 categories of work. It's a somewhat of a uh, inside baseball question as to exactly is it considered, is it not considered the full severity. But it's a, it's a so I had the Uber driver take the bads into the actual hospital and deposit it there. I'm thinking, as of the whole time, I'm thinking like this, this driver must think that we're total jerks. You know, ask them to open the door and asking them to carry our stuff. But we were going to a, you know, the, the Texas Children Women's Pavilion with a quite visually clear pregnant woman, you know? And, and the woman, the, the, the driver, she, she did indicate that it seems like she knew what was happening. Um, so, so she was very understanding. But, um, listen, you gotta do what you gotta do. After Shabbos, I did go to my phone, I did give her a five-star review, and I did give her a $5 tip.
I figured that was fair. So we got so we get to the uh, ninth floor, whatever it is, and you got to sign in. Now, actually signing in, the Talmud makes it clear, writing two letters on Shabbos, that's a biblical prohibition. So I understand you have to go to the hospital, but do you need to sign in? So the guy, so we asked the security guy, and he's like, yeah, sure, I'll sign for you. He just writes the name. You don't need, you don't need to write. Let, let the non-Jew, let him write it. No problem. So he wrote it for us. And, uh, they opened up all the doors for us. And the, the security guard was actually very, um, he was very curious about it because he was, uh, he said that in his position, you know, he's meeting all these people from all these different kinds of religions and all these different backgrounds. And to him, he's fascinating and so curious by it. And, uh, consequently, he, um, so he was asking all these questions. What could you do? What can't you do? You have to, are you allowed to eat on Shabbos? He's like, boy, you should, <laughs> you should see what we eat on Shabbos. Um, but he was, uh, he was uh, very curious, very qu- inquisitive. And, um, so he signed that for us. No problem. Now, actually later on, there was one thing that we had to sign that my wife actually had to sign the, um, the waiver for the, um, for the anesthesia for the, so that they won't let you sign. But the, actually, the Talmud makes it clear. This is, again, cool stuff that uh, don't usually play out every week. If someone is forced to do a biblical prohibition, there's ways to mitigate it. How so? So to actually transgress a biblical prohibition, a, an act has to have certain components to it. And some of, and part of that is doing it in the normal fashion. Whereas if someone does it in an oblique fashion or unusual fashion, that would kind of downgrade it from a biblical prohibition to a, to a rabbinic prohibition. And that's kind of the theme. The theme is you, you want to, you do, do whatever you can to make sure that everything goes normal, but you don't need to do anything more than, than, than is necessary. So, so Chaya took the pen in her left hand. Did the initials three times and signed her name, also with the left hand. And it's interesting because the guy, the anesthesiologist, actually is like, "Are you a lefty?" I must have looked kind of awkward, <laughs> uh, but she's like, "Eh, whatever." We kind of downplayed it, but it's uh, it's interesting, like how it's such a different experience. And then finally, you're you're there, and your children are home, and they have no idea what's going on. I'm sure they're curious. They're Right, the, the the they're kind of nervous. It's and it's hours. We left them at nine o'clock, and Shabbos is over at eight forty or something like that, or eight thirty. I didn't even know exactly. Check ahead of time. So eight thirty, eight forty. It's it's twelve hours, and they don't know what's happening. And of course, you have family. My parents in New York, and my in laws in Canada. They don't know what's happening, and they they don't even know that they should know that there's something happening. <laughs> Uh, we, and we actually have our phones with us. And all of these nurses, and of course, there's a whole cavalcade of nurses and people coming in the whole time. And, and then the finally baby's born. Baby took a while to come out. But, uh, around five in the afternoon, baby's born. And then they're there, pochting her eyes. They say in Yiddish, you know, tending to the baby. And then the nurse says, do you have a camera? I, I assume that this child set the record. For the longest lifespan being unphotographed. <laughs> because you imagine everyone's always on their phones and taking pictures and sent, right? I said to her, no, we don't have a camera. She's like, okay. I told one of the nurses, I says, we're waiting for the bids to come in from people and us weekly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> who's gonna be who's gonna have the first uh, <laughs> she, she thought it was pretty funny. 
Uh, that was already after Shabbos was over. So about to make all the phone calls. And we didn't like explain to everyone what was happening. Uh, I guess if you look at me, I was kind of dressed the way I am right now. I guess you could figure that uh, there's some sort of religious persuasion there. But I don't know if people even know. It's Saturday, Shabbos, and people are Shabbos observant. But yeah, so the baby's born around five. And then uh, we just we were just there, just, you know, enjoying Shabbos. I brought a, a book of Talmud with me. I was able to study five pages of Talmud. I did not bring, sadly, I should have thought of this. They don't bring a chumash because I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I wasn't able to read the parsha because I didn't have any. And it's like in Israel, every hospital, there's tons of Jewish books. And there's a, uh, my other son was born on Shabbos in, in Jerusalem, in Shari Tzedek Hospital. There's a shul, like in the floor below. And there's kosher food and there's everything, right? So I went to the shul and, and he got an aliyah. Like he, he, he actually named the child because he's supposed to name – traditionally we name the child when you get – when the father gets an aliyah, that's an opportunity to name a child. And a, a child – baby boy, of course, is named at the bris. A baby girl is named uh, some other time but usually typically – traditionally it's done with an aliyah. So if there was – I was thinking if there was a minion somewhere nearby, I could have I could have gone over and uh, gotten an aliyah but uh, – we're stranded in this place. And then finally, we wait for Shabbos is over and Shabbos is over. Call parents, call in-laws, check up on the kids. The kids were dancing. They were so excited. They were just overjoyed. And uh, then Shabbos was over and everyone's comfortable in their rooms. And I took an Uber back and picked up the kids. They were exhausted. They woke up early and they were – you know, running around the whole day and uh, brought, brought him home, put him, put him to sleep. And, uh, I get back. I'm going to take the kids over to the hospital. And when my daughter Miriam was born, I, I told my boys who were little, it was like Akiva was, I don't know, uh, four and Shlomo was two little kids. I told them, I said, okay, you cannot imagine what happened. When the Almighty sent this girl down, he brought gifts. For her two older brothers. And I pulled out as if she was holding it, I pulled out two two lollipops. And they and they remember this thing and like, we know it was really you who did it. We know. I said, What? How would you think how would you think that? She brought it because she knew she had two big brothers. So that's my plan to do it again. So and and the kids, the big kids, of course, know that it's all a game. It's all <laughs> they know. They know that. Uh, so on the way back, I'm going to stop off and get some lollipops, and uh, and then I'll say, "Listen, I, I told the kids when I got home. I said you cannot imagine what she brought with her." And they're like, "Oh, we know, we know, we know, <laughs> we know, we know your stick already." <laughs> yeah, they know, but they're like, "Yeah, it's interesting that only the girls bring it." Hmm. <laughs> so they're, they're more nurturing. What could you do? So anyhow, uh, so I was going to do a class on the uh, a primer on Pesach. What I ultimately opted to do is something uh, a little bit germane to the subject um, of having new babies. And it's also one of the themes of Pesach. And that is the four sons. As we know, one of the highlights of the Haggadah, or one of the themes of Pesach in general is the idea of conveying the story of the Exodus to your children. And if you actually examine the Torah, you'll find that there are four different times, there's four different verses that describe a dialogue between parent and child related to Pesach. When your child asks you, 
Why are we doing Pesach? You tell him because of the Exodus. But that's recorded four times, three times in the book of Exodus and once in the book of Deuteronomy. And of course, our sages tell us that if you look at these four dialogues, there's nuance between the exact methodology of how this message is conveyed. And the obvious answer, and like we read in the Haggadah, is that there's four different kinds of children. You know, they say there's four character types, the uh, Myers-Briggs. So we have four sons, and this is in the Haggadah. So essentially this is Jewish wisdom that goes back thousands of years because the Haggadah, even it's not so clear when it was written, but it's it's definitely more than a thousand years old. Uh, and it's probably around 17, 1800 years old, the formulation of the Haggadah. And the fact that Torah gives us four different dialogues between parents and children regarding the Pesach story, that teaches us that there's four different kinds of conversations that we could have. And the Haggadah tells us there's four kinds of children, four sons, the wise son, the wicked son, the simple son, and the son that does not know how to ask. Now, what does that tell us? That tells us that children are different. And consequently, we have to tailor our pedagogical information and relationship to the unique particular nature of the child. So certain children, if you do one kind of educational methods, it will click, it will resonate, it will work. That same exact methodology to a different child, it just won't work. And I have a, one of my children and the school tells them, listen, our school is designed for one kind of child that your son is not. <laughs> and therefore, it, every day is a challenge. And, you know, it's if you're in a classroom, there can only be one teacher, right? Maybe you can have one teacher per child, but that's not efficient. And there has to be kind of one sort of uh, modality that the education is being conveyed in. And you have different children and uh, certainly in a place like uh, Houston that has, you know, one or two different suitable schools um, for our kind of family, it's – you kind of have to take what you get. And uh, there isn't much specialization that's available. But here we see that certainly with a parent, certainly with something which is so important that the Pesach story, we have to make sure this one don't mess up. This one don't just do cookie-cutter approach. This information is so critical, you have to know how to give it to the child. And you have to know what child you got. And you have to know, therefore, how to convey the message to the child. So I think it's interesting to pursue kind of um, a study of this, these four children in general, but also the general idea that's being conveyed here. So let's frame it like this. In the Shema, of course, one of the highlights of of the Jewish days, recitation of the Shema, it talks about parents and children. You should teach the words of Torah to your children. They should speak about them. You should teach it them they, they, on, uh, when you wake up, when you go to sleep, when you're traveling, etc. Again, we're told what we're supposed to teach our children Torah. That's the mitzvah. In fact, the Talmud says that parents teach the child Torah. And how do we know that? Well, it quotes the verse in Deuteronomy. It says your parent has to teach child Torah. So let me ask you a question. Aren't there different kinds of children? Yeah, I read the Haggadah. There's four kinds of children. So we should have four separate verses 
regarding the wise child, how do you teach them? Regarding the wicked child, how do you teach them? Regarding the child that's simple, the one that does not have to ask. All the different kinds of children, we should be getting a different verse. How can we get this? Teach your children Torah. Okay. My theory is that the reason why on Pesach and with respect to the Pesach story, we are told four verses for four different children and unique, subtle differences to tailor the message to the child, that's because that is a, uh, a, a means. That is how you get to the goal. Whereas in the Shema, when it talks about the relationship we have with our children, that's not the means, that's the goal itself. And what I'm suggesting is that the Torah is telling us that we have a, we have a goal with all of our children, all the different varieties and stripes. However, the varieties and stripes will determine which avenue, which path we take to get towards that same goal. And in Shema, in the Shema, we're told what the goal is. And on Pesach, we're told how to get to that goal. And therefore, they're complementary. One is what you need to do to get to the goal. And one is if you do what you need to do, you will arrive at this goal. And that's the goal, which is the uniform goal for all your children. Now, I want, to, I want to stress that this is not to imply that every child has to be identical and every child has to be like a robot. We don't believe in that. We don't believe that children should be programmed like machines to just follow instructions and not have a mind of their own. But when the Torah says that children should live a robust spiritual life, when the, when the Torah tells us that children should live a robust spiritual life, they should have Torah involved with them at every stage of their life, that's not saying that they all should be the same. They're just saying they should all have rich spiritual lives and that's your goal as a parent to enrich your children and to guide them and to position them to succeed and hopefully arrive at that satisfactory conclusion. So the goal is present to the Shema. So what do we read in the Shema? So if you look at the Ramban... There's a famous Ramban on education. And he says that if he contrasts the first paragraph of the Shema with the second paragraph of the Shema. The first paragraph of the Shema says you should thoroughly teach your children and you should speak the words of Torah to your children. So it seems like it's a very direct relationship, a direct transaction. Parent directly speaks to the child words of Torah. The second paragraph of the Shema says you should teach the Torah to them, to your sons, so that they should speak it. So again, it begins, teach the words of Torah to your children. But then it adds, so that they should speak in it. And that's not a direct transaction parent to child. There the children are speaking a bit, it's speaking on it on their own. So what he's explaining here is that the goal is not that you be a helicopter parent, as they say, always hovering over your children, having their uh, apron strings uh, connected to you at all times, and therefore the kid cannot flourish on your on their own. The goal is that whatever you do is going to kind of kickstart them to be able to flourish on their own. Of course, there's the analogy of the bicycle, right? You hold a little bit, 
let them ride it. But if you're always holding it, they'll never be able to flourish on their own. They'll never spread their wings. They'll never become their independent person. My grandfather used to always convey the analogy, you have a candle, and that's the parent. And then you have another candle, which is unlit. And the goal of parenting and education is to touch the two wicks. That way the fire can transfer from the lit candle to the unlit candle. But then once that's done, the parents, so to speak, withdraw and the child can remain lit on their own. So that's the same thing here. We see that the parent is initially first chapter of, of, uh, first paragraph of the, of the Shema is teaching the child. And that's a direct transactional relationship with spread to Torah. And then the second paragraph, the child is flourishing on their own. They're speaking the words of Torah on their own. And that seems like that's the goal of parenting. The Hebrew word for parenting and for education in general is chinuch. Chinuch. And I believe the first time that that word appears in the Torah, it appears in chapter 14, verse 14 of Genesis. Vayarak eschanichav. And it appears in somewhat of an unusual location. It's talking about with uh, Abraham is in the middle of a war. He somehow got involved. There's a war of four kings against five kings. And then his his nephew slash brother-in-law is uh, – his cousin is kidnapped. Lot is kidnapped. Then he has to get involved. But he arms his household to go partake in the in the war. And the way it is described, he mobilizes his forces, but the the forces are his students, we're told. 318 students. And they're called Khanichav, his his students, his his charges, his his proteges. And Rashi there gives us a definition of what this word means. What does the word chinuch mean? So Rashi explains that the word chinuch, which of course by us means education, but here it's used in a different context, it's the initiation, it's the entry of a person or a vessel into the future that they're destined to stay in. So the first step of something or someone in a future that they're going to remain in, that is chinuch. It's not about information. I think today there is uh, the concept of education and information have been helplessly entangled. That we think that the goal of, of schooling is to learn things. Now, of course, it's important to learn things. But it's more important to become things. You know, I, I always say that um, I'm an autodidact kind of learn on my own and i think that's like that's the best deal like you teach the man you give the man a fish and they eat for a day and you teach them to fish and they eat forever right is that the line our schools again not all schools are like that but in general the idea of coming to school and having someone speak about a subject to children who are not interested in listening that is about giving the kids fish giving them information but if you really want to educate them you have to teach them how to learn, and once they learn that skill, then whatever they want to learn, they can learn. 
everything is available to them. You give them the skills, you initiate them into what you want them to become, and once they become that, then you don't need to constantly feed them. Because if if you need to constantly feed them, then once you leave, then the information probably never actually entered in one ear or out the other, or even it uh, hurdles over their their ears uh, from from one side of their uh, cranium to the other. That's that's what happens. But if you kind of train a child into a way that they on the, on their own can flourish, that's the goal. Again, like the candle that's lit on its own. You touch it, and that's the the relationship is to, is to ignite this passion, this 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 appreciation of learning of, of 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 spiritual matters. You do that, the kids lit, and then they can flourish on their own, even if the parent is is withdrawn. And therefore, Torah is telling us that you know in the Shema, it's telling us this is what you're responsible to do with your child. You know, you're a link. In a chain that began by Abraham, and it's this unbroken chain of parent to child, and you have a responsibility. It's, it's one of your existential, fundamental roles as as a human to to pass that on to your child. And you know, in the in the paragraph that talks about the most important things: loving God and believing God, and God is one. And, it, it puts this up there on that pedestal. That's your responsibility. And that's the goal. And then we come to, to Pesach and we're told how to do it. How to do it. Not all candles are created equal. Some candles need to be lit this way and some need to be lit that way. And some of them, you kind of have to work really, really hard and some of them come already like it's half lit. It arrives half lit. You just need a blow it a little bit and it could kind of take off on its own. And that's what we're told in Pesach. And it's, I, I, maybe this, this is maybe the next level to understand like why is Pesach the festival that we're told how to educate and the rest of the year we're told what the goal is. Maybe that's an advanced question. Maybe the answer is because, you know, this is the beginning of it all. The beginning of our tenure as a Jewish nation is of course the Exodus. And maybe at the beginning, you have to know how to do it. Maybe that's I'm, I'm spitballing here. That's that's that that's a theory, but it is interesting that we see this this emphasis on how to do it and how to tailor on Pesach. We know that there is a critical verse in Scripture in the book of Proverbs, page not page chapter twenty two, verse six. Chanoch, same word, Chanoch, which means educate. Chanoch lanar al pidarko, gam ki yaztin lo yasur mimena. This is the fundamental verse about education. Train, educate a child as per his way. So that also when he gets old, he will not depart from it. There's two points of it. A, there is instruction, and B, there is prediction. Instruction is educate the child as per his way. He has this way. He has that way. She has a third way. Every child has their own way. And therefore, make sure you put them on their own way. Don't try to jam or shoehorn the square peg in the round hole. Don't try to force someone to do something which is not they're not suited for because 
that's not good education. And it's and and the verse acknowledges it's quite possible that you'll have moderate success in the short term. You will have success in the short term. You know why? Because you got police power. You're 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 intimidating. You're the parent after all. The child loves you, the child wants to listen to you. But it's not actually clicking at their base, most fundamental level because it's unnatural for them. And therefore, you're sending a child in a path that's unnatural for you. You're going to try to override their inherent characteristic, character type. It's not going to work. They're going to veer back to their own character type and they're, they're bereft of education. If you line the trees, so to speak, of this road with robust spirituality and you put the child on that road, but really they're supposed to be in a different road – they eventually will veer back to their road and they'll find it denuded of the spiritual efforts that you uh, that you worked so hard to cultivate because you made this mistake of, I would say, paving the wrong road or uh, cultivating the wrong path. So yes, educate the child as per his way so that when they get old and when they get old, they will revert. They will revert back to the thing that's more natural. Hopefully then they'll they'll still have the impact of your of your hard work. This is a major theme of Jewish life, of certainly of Jewish parenting, that when we train our children, it should be in a way that is suitable for their particular set of circumstances and gifts and character types and traits. And doing it in a way that's unnatural for them will not yield long-term positive results. And and that and that that's what the idea was in the Shema. The idea is the parents working, 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 but the old the, the the eventual goal is the child studies Torah on their own. Even the parents not involved, the parents in a different city, the parent is in a different room, the parents deceased, whatever it is, the child's candle is burning brightly. So that's the goal, and the way to do it is to do it in a way that's tailored to to the particular nature of the child. And on Pesach, we find out that there are four different child types. Number one, the wise one. Number two, the wicked one. Number three, the simple one. And number four, the child does not know how to ask. So these are four different character types that we see. And we also see how to identify what those uh, what those character types are. And we also see how to respond to them. So it's an amazing lesson in the very short part of the Haggadah. And of course, it's based upon the verses in the Torah that show us both the uh, the tools of of diagnosing the particular kind of child that you've got, and also how to how to tailor your message that it will resonate with that particular child. So, uh, let's start with the wise child. Uh, I think on one hand, the wise wise child is the easiest one to deal with. They just want to learn. They just want to behave. They call it the textbook child. They want to read, you know, they want to learn, they're interested. And the only scarcity is on the point of of the teacher. So that's what makes it really hard. Because if you want to teach the child, but you don't know much, well, then how are you going to teach a child? I would say today's schools are probably oriented around trying to teach wise sons. Why? Because the factor that's most prevalent in in the educational conveyance is information. Child and if he wants to learn, it's great. It's a utopia because they're just giving them information. Hopefully, there's good teachers and there's good books and there's a way for them to learn. And that's it. There's no friction. There's no problem. 
the kid wants to learn, there's someone who wants to teach, just give them the information and let and watch them watch them flourish. They want to learn, they want to grow, they want to flourish. Great. Is it better to have a uh, a large classroom with a lot of kids or a small classroom with few kids? I would say it depends. If it's wise children, fewer kids. Kids want to learn, more kids, more distractions. Eliminate the noise, let them study. You have some of the other kids, they want to play. They're not interested in learning. They want to space out. They want to doodle. They want to eat snacks in class. That's what they want to do. And if there's fewer kids, there's more attention. Some kids need less attention. They just need to be able to be kids. And if you try to push them too hard, what you're doing, you're pushing them to the wrong lane, right? You're pushing them into the wrong path. That's a problem. So they need a big classroom with lots of noise and lots of chaos and they could just hide in the corner and do their stuff, you know, whether it is read the book that they, that they want. That's not the same book that we're studying here. Oh, okay. Uh, or, uh, let them, uh, doodle, let them make pictures, right? They need that and forcing them to a different, right? It's not natural. And again, you're going against the nature of the child. And that's what we're told here to avoid by King Solomon. So the, the first son is the, the wise son. The wise son needs to, you know, the the problem is not the child. The child's ready to go, perfectly primed to study, and it's only a question of how much could you teach them. It's not about pedagogical uh, deftness or cleverness. It's about how much teaching ability do you have, how much capability do you have, how much you are you going to convey to the child so that they could flourish. And then we read about the wicked son. And uh, the wicked son seems like he's a really bad guy. He's called the wicked one. But what's so bad about what he says? So we read in the Haggadah that he says, what are you guys doing? And he seems to kind of be disincluding himself from from the public. He seems to be trying to alienate himself from everyone else. This is something you're doing. This is not something that I am doing. He is being recalcitrant. But it's also interesting that he doesn't, he doesn't do it in a overt way. It's really interesting here. He doesn't say, I'm not interested in what you're doing. He says, what are you guys doing? It's kind of like, it's kind of like subtle. Like if we would meet this child, we would never call him wicked. We wouldn't. Yet the Haggadah calls him wicked. Shouldn't we not be labeling our children, right? Isn't, doesn't that seem a little bit, I don't know. Doesn't that rub us the wrong way that he's being labeled as, what was his crime? My goodness. Did he do something so terrible? He just asks a simple question, innocent question. What, what are you doing? So in what area do we need to focus on? We're told he's wicked, right? Yet he doesn't seem to be doing anything wrong. There is a term of wickedness in Jewish literature when someone doesn't hasn't done anything wrong. But it's, it's used to highlight the flaw. Now, again, the, the flaw with the wise child is only with respect to the teacher. Kids ready to go. There's nothing to stop. There's no, there's no headwinds. The child's facing. The only, the headwinds is, can you teach him enough? Can you give him enough to satisfy it? Here, the wicked son, quote unquote, I think everyone would agree. Is probably not intellectually incapable. Maybe he's the most capable. He has all the t- 
tools, there's, there's, there's just some resistance, something raw about the child that they're unwilling to listen or that they view it at a, at a distance. They're not willing to commit. It's not that they can't. They could. It's not that they don't have the, 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 the attention span they have. It's that they're scared to jump in. And they're scared to apply to themselves. They're, they're insecure about what's being conveyed here. So I'll give you an example. I'll give you an analog to this. There is someone else in Jewish literature that is simultaneously, this is why it's so interesting, called a tzaddik, which means a righteous and a righteous person, and simultaneously it's called a rasha, a wicked person. And by conventional understanding, those two are Opposites. It's oxymoronic. You can't be both. You have to be only one. And that, those people are a set of people in the book of Numbers. These are the spies, the scouts that were sent to scout out the land. If you look at a chapter, I don't know what it is exactly, 12 or 13 of, of Numbers, you look at Rashi. Rashi says within a few verses, they're righteous, they're wicked. Tzadok, Rasha. And how's that even possible? Those are opposites. So I think if you look at exactly what is their wickedness, you maybe find the answer. Rashi says that the end of Parsha's Baalosa, the previous Parsha, tells the story of Miriam speaking negatively about her brother. She gets Tsaras and she's put outside the camp and everyone has to wait for seven days till she heals before they can move on. The very next episode is the episode of the spies. It says Rashi, these people are a Russia. They're Rashaim. They're wicked. Why? Because they saw what happened to Miriam and they didn't take the lesson to heart. They didn't apply it to themselves. They didn't absorb it. They saw it. They should have learned. They didn't. Again. And then a few verses later, um, a few a few comments later, Rashi says, At that time, they were tzaddikim, they were righteous. What he means is that they were, in the realm of action, in the realm of ideology, they were righteous. But they had a certain resistance to applying the lessons that they learned to themselves. They saw Miriam, they saw her illness, they understand why it happened, but they didn't take that final mile. They said, it's not for me, it's for someone else. They, they, they didn't apply it to themselves. That was their wickedness. Yes, it's only a small part of the, the collective arsenal of, of character. And in general, they were righteous, but this was their flaw. Their flaw was their lack of self-application. And I think what we can say with the wicked son, that's the same thing that we're talking about over here. It's not like he's evil. It's not called the evil son. It's called the wicked son, the Russia. Maybe it's the same thing. There's nothing wrong with them per se. What they need is to find a way to overcome this challenge. They're not willing to – they're saying – they're dissociating themselves. They're saying this is for you, not for me. Again, they're not willing to apply it to themselves. I, I definitely think this is one of the most – maybe the most important steps of personal growth is learning how to not be this kind of Russia. Learning how to apply things to yourself. Because someone can be the most wise and gifted and studious and assiduous scholar, but if they don't take the lessons to heart, it doesn't change them. 
A person changed them to stay the way they are. Maybe they even get worse because they had all the tools and they should have learned and they didn't. So what is the way to remedy this wicked person's, wicked son's recalcitrance? So the Talmud says something very interesting. It says, the Talmud says that the verse that talks about teaching the wicked son, it says, You should tell your son at that on that day. The word vihigadatel, the word hagada means to, to say, to tell over. But there's another word called amira, which means also to say. So the Talmud asks, why does it use the term vihigadata? You should tell your son. It should have said vamarta. You should say your son in a more traditional use of the words. Says the Talmud that the reason why it uses this word is because the word hagada connotes the term agada. Agada means very interesting things. And it says when you convey the message to your son, you say it in a way that pulls the heartstrings like agadata, which means you couch it in a way that's very pleasant and very attractive to them. I think what this is, the first thing that we read about over here is that it's it's not just about what you're conveying to your child. It's also about how you're conveying it to your child. It should, be, it should be done in a very pleasant way that is conducive to influencing them because you have to realize that there's some resistance that's material, that's, that's real, and you have to kind of navigate that. And one of the ways that you do that is you're trying to tug at their heartstrings, right? You, you have these little strings. you got to pull at them because you try to grab the whole thing. It's not going to work. you gotta, you got to use pleasantness and be crafty in how you – try to reach out to this child on one hand. On the other hand, the child also needs a bit of criticism because after all, there's something there that's corrupt. So what is the criticism that is that a child is told? So if you read the Haggadah, it says, you tell him, because of this, did God do to me when I left Egypt? He's like, well, what's Pesach all about for you? And he said, because of this, God did this to me when I left Egypt. So how's that criticism? Doesn't sound like his criticism. So the idea here is, first of all, their recalcitrance is subtle, and therefore the criticism is also subtle. He says, I'm not part of this. He doesn't say it like that. He says, why are you doing Pesach? Most of us, if we would hear that, we're like, okay, he's just asking a simple question. But the Haggadah is telling you that there's some degree of dissociation. It's, it's you, it's not me. So what do you say? Oh, say, oh, is that what you want? Oh, okay. This Pesach is because God did this for me. And again, you're subtly dissociating him. It's like when the kids say, like, you know, why, like, why do the neighbors have this bike and why do they have it? Oh, oh, okay. You want to move to move into them? Should I call them up? You want to move into them? You sure? Are you sure you want this? So first, you reach out with pleasantness, and then you say, "Okay, are you sure you want you want that? Do you really want to be on your own? Of course not. Of course not. But do you really want it? Of course not. No, you don't want that. But it, it's all it means you, you're actually playing out what he wants to its nat- natural." Extension, right? You say, okay, okay, so let, let's, let's take this road that you're proposing. You want to be on your own? Okay, okay. Let, let me give you what you want and see if you really like it. Sometimes 
you realize that maybe you didn't want it. So first, you make sure that you're a friend. You're pleasant. You tug at their heartstrings. And then you say to them, okay, this is what you wanted. I'm, I'm going to criticize you, but not in a overt way, only in the same manner that you did. But I'm also going to play out this story in the way that you are formulating it. You want it like this? Okay, let's, let's, let's look at the natural extensions of that, of that approach and see if you actually like it because you probably really won't like it. But again, all done pleasantly and all done subtly. And that's a way you're, again, you're navigating very deftly around the problem of the child's recalcitrance and that will hopefully make them uh, reconsider and actually buy in. Thirdly, we read about the simple son. And what's the simple son? What does he say? He says, Mazos, what is this? So he's asking a very uh, unsophisticated question. So Rashi, in fact, Rashi on the Torah, Rashi tells us that this is a uh, a silly child, an right? unsophisticated child, doesn't know how to ask questions deeply and just asks general questions. What's this? And what's the answer? So you look at the answer. It's a very beautiful answer. You tell the child with a strong hand, did God take us out of the land of Egypt from the house of slaves? So you're, in effect, encapsulating the story of, of the Exodus in a, in a sentence. But if you notice, like you're highlighting some portions of the story with a strong hand. You're adding some color to it. This was very impressive. This was miraculous. God took us out from Egypt, from the house of slavery. Not just from Egypt. You, you embellish the story in a way that is going to be evocative for the child. Don't just give them the information. They don't, the laws, the, the laws that doesn't work. You need to inspire them. You need to entertain them. You need, it, it needs to be a story format. You have to put in little, little bits of, little vignettes, little anecdotes. Embellish the story in a way that interests them. The wise child, that doesn't, that doesn't excite them, doesn't titillate them. They want to know, okay, detail, laws, complex. They want to get into the nitty gritty of the advanced learning. This child, they're simple. They need to be first awakened. They need to be entertained. They need to be inspired. And therefore, what do you do? You tell them the story. It's the same message. But again, it's tailored to who they are, what kind of child they are. Impress them. Show them some fireworks and they'll be excited. And finally, you have the child who does not know how to ask. And in that case, he asks no questions. And such a child, you need to prod and you have to goad them into getting involved. This Pesach is so important. They have to – they can't just sit in the sidelines. Normally, they just sit back, then ask questions. Not today. Today, if you don't have questions, okay, I'm going to prod you. I'm going to push some buttons to awaken interest, to awaken maybe questions. It's so important. Even when the child is not inquisitive, they're not, they're not resistant. They're not recalcitrant. They're not, they're not totally absorbing everything you're telling you. They're not even asking the simple questions. They're not asking anything. Well, okay, it's your job to initiate. You have to talk to them and you have to tell them 
those those messages. Now, the, now it's interesting. If you read the Kedusha of the Four Sons, it seems like it starts going right away to a different topic. It says maybe you may think that this starts from Rosh Chodesh, meaning that this starts two weeks before Pesach. Pesach is on the fifteenth, so the first day of the month. That's what you would maybe think. Therefore, it says the verse tells us on that day, meaning the day of the Exodus. Well, maybe it's the entire day. No, it says Ba'avur Zeh because of this. The only time that you're supposed to tell the children, or the time that you specifically supposed to tell the children about about Pesach is about the Exodus is when there's matzah and maror in front of you. So this seems like it's a totally unrelated subject. There's a mitzvah of telling your children about the story of the Exodus. And you may have thought uh, that it's, it's, it's a month, it's a half a month earlier, or maybe it's the whole day. No, tell you that it's, it's, it's right now. It's during the Seder. So it seems like it's unrelated to the previous narrative of four sons. I, I think maybe we could say that it's, it's, it's related. You have a son that doesn't ask. So what are you going to do? You're going to prod them. You're going to encourage them to get involved. How are you going to do that? So if you just take your kid out and say, okay, time to talk about Pesach. Pesach. <laughs> Pesach. Exodus. Well, Exodus. You tell them, no, no, no. Today. Right now. As we are sitting here right now. This is what was happening. And here's the matzah. And you pull the matzah. And you use these visual cues. These visual aids. You're, you're bringing the story to life. This very expensive, very sawdusty matzah was what our grandparents ate. Could you imagine? Look at this murder. First of all, it looks like bricks. And it tastes terrible. Bitter. Makes you cry. This is what they were going through. And God took us out so fast. It was, it, could you imagine gathering a million people in, in 10 minutes? And, and ferreting, ferreting them out of, out of Egypt? So much so that the, that the dough didn't even rise. Are they able to, they were able to bake it subsequently. Look at that. Look at, look, look at this. Could you imagine? Take them to a matzah bakery. You know how powerful a matzah bakery is? You see what? It's a wild place. Because again, you have 18 minutes and 18 minutes only. Once 18 minutes is over, you gotta get a new factory. So you have, how much matzah can you bake in 18 minutes? And you see the, 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 the frenetic pace of what's going on there. It's, it's just, it's really intense. And that's what we have to do to prevent it from rising. That's what the Jewish people were doing. They were just running out of there, running out of Egypt. And again, this is all part of your message. Such a child, the child doesn't know how to ask. You need to be the one who initiates. How do you do that? Well, here you go. It's today. Timely, topical. You have these incredible aids to help you pick up the matzah. See this matzah? This is what they ate. Why did they eat this matzah? Who would want to eat this? Why are we paying so much money for this? It's because they were leaving so fast. And what they come from? They left from this terrible place with the mar. Again, you're contrasting. We were in a house of slaves in the land of Egypt, and God took us out with an outstretched arm. And again, this is a very impressionable moment, this night, with all its trappings and all its symbolism and all its power, this is the time to get all the children the messages they need to hopefully develop and and deepen their faith 
And again, each message conveyed to each child in their own way, in a way that resonates with them, to be able to hopefully take that inspiration and take that faith and that will not only influence them throughout the whole year, certainly on Pesach, but throughout the whole year, but really this could be foundational for for their life at, lives as Jews throughout uh, throughout their lifetimes. And it's important. This is the one thing you can't mess up. You got to know what kind of child you got and you got to convey the message in a way uh, that really connects to the kind of child that the Almighty gave you. But the goal is, whichever child you get, you, you every child has a way to reach them. I heard a uh, an idea this past year when we were reading Parsha's Chayesara, which is in the book of Genesis, so the fifth Parsha of the Torah. It talks about Keturah. Keturah was Abraham's second wife after Sarah died. Rashi tells us the Keturah is actually a woman that we know. She's actually Hagar. So why is she called Keturah? Because her actions are as noble as Keturah's. Keturah's is the incense offering. That's what Rashi says in Chayasar. This is very odd. Hagar, wonderful, wonderful lady. Amazing. But what connection does she possibly have with Keturah's? Keturah's is the, the offering, the incense offering, that was done in the temple uh, multiple times a day. And it was this beautiful smell. All the various potions, all the various spices that went into it, like the, like the Talmud, the Torah delineates all the various spices. But what does Hagar have to do with Keturah's? It doesn't seem like there's any connection. I heard an amazing idea that we know Hagar is the mother of Ishmael. Can you imagine what it's like to educate and parent Ishmael. Before he was born, the angel declared, He'll be a wild animal. We think we have a problem with our kids who have ADHD. This kid was a wild animal and this is declared by the angel before he's born. There's no way to change that. And what happens at the end of his life? Well, we see at the end of his life, the Talmud tells us, Rashi brings it down, that Ishmael repented and he became righteous. An amazing transformation, a metamorphosis. How'd that happen? So maybe the answer is like this. The, I say, just tell us, there's 11 ingredients, I believe, in, in, in the Katoris. And the, the smell was so beautiful that the Talmud says that when the Katoris was active in Jerusalem, no bride would need to put on any perfume because everything smelled so delicious, so amazing. Everything smelled so so beautiful. The whole city was influenced by this amazing smell. However, the Talmud tells us that there was one ingredient called the chelbana, it's one of the spices, that had a terrible smell. But together with the cocktail of all the other stuff, it smelled beautiful. That's what Hagar did. She realized that she was given a very difficult child, Ishmael, because he he's he has proclivities, he has character traits that are that are vile. 
And she was like Katoris. She knew which ingredients to add. She knew which buttons to push that the collective total is beautiful. The aroma that resulted from the totality of Ishmael was he repented. He became righteous. And that's why she's called Katura because she was the wizard. She was the potions master that knew exactly how to deal with this problem and what other ingredients to add to make the final result very aromatic, very pleasant. That's why she's called her actions were as noble as Katoris. But I think it's a good lesson for us. You know, we have children and every single human on the planet has some flaws. Because you know what? If they didn't have any flaws, they wouldn't be a human. So everyone has flaws. And everyone has, of course, good characteristics as, as well. As a parent's, a, a parent's responsibility is or, or their mandate is to act like Hagar a little bit and to find the avenue, the path where that particular child with their own particular set uh, um, collection repertoire of character, how could this child flourish? What is the lane that I can make for this child that they could uh, ultimately end up uh, with that, like we see in the Shema, the robust spiritual life that's outlined there. That's hopefully the goal of, of, of all parenting and hopefully the destiny of, of all of our children.